0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we return to the prof, Howard Hendricks. He is most likely to end up in prison, was the assessment of his fifth grade teacher in Philadelphia. Once, she even tied him to a seat with a rope and taped his mouth shut. Everything changed for that boy when he met his sixth grade teacher. He introduced himself to Miss No, and she told him, I've heard a lot about you but I don't believe a word of it. Those words would change his life forever. She made him realize for the first time that someone cared. People are always looking for someone to say, hey, I believe in you, he said. And in his more than 60 years as a professor, he believed in his students. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a study on the process of failure.
1: If you have a Bible or a New Testament, may I invite you to turn in the word which is alive to the gospel by Mark, Mark chapter 14. While you are turning there, may I remind you that this is not what Christ would say if he were here, but what he is saying because he is here. Have you ever wondered why there is so much failure recorded in the Bible. It's quite obvious to an even casual reader of this book that its pages are strewn with the wreckage and debris of men and women who have failed in their faith. These facts of failure tell me two very important things about this book. They tell me, first of all, that God, not man, wrote this book. Man tends to gloss over the sins of his contemporaries. He whitewashes his fellow man, but not God. When he paints the portrait of a man, he paints him, warts and all. But these facts of failure not only tell me that God wrote this book, they also tell me that the God who wrote this book was a God of grace, who wanted me to profit from the experience of failure in the life of others. And so these failures are like flashing red lights, which say, watch out, caution, danger. It can happen here. I suppose there is no more familiar failure in all of the Bible than the one detailed here in Mark 14, where you have a record of the defection of Peter. But I'd like to suggest for your thinking tonight that Peter's failure was not a blowout. It was a slow leap. In fact, it always is in the spiritual realm. Oh, I know it appears to you as if someone drops over the side of a precipice but may I remind you that all you are seeing is the end product of a process which has been developing for some time. For just a few moments, I'd like to trace the process of Peter's failure so that you and I might not fall into the same trance. In verses 27 through 31, Peter made the first mistake. That's the mistake of boasting too much. Our Lord said, all of you will fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter, whenever Peter enters the narrative, it's always with a thud. This man had a tremendous facility for opening his mouth, putting both feet into it, and wondering why he couldn't walk. He had the original hoof and mouth disease. Peter says, even although all others fail you, I will not. Lord, I don't know about the rest of these men, but you can count on me. And our Lord in grace attempts to stab him awake by saying, Peter, it's sooner than you think. I tell you the truth, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the writer adds, P.S., all the others said the same. See, Peter was merely the spokesman for the group. Why, Lord, my devotion is so great, it's willing to go to the point of death. Now, what was Peter's problem? Well, I'd like to suggest that Peter's problem was not a problem of insincerity. I think Peter meant exactly what he said. In fact, I seriously question if he was ever more sincere than he was on this occasion. In fact, as we're going to see in a moment, he was willing to take on a hundred men single-handedly to back up that claim. No, Peter's problem was not a problem of insincerity. Peter's problem was a problem of ignorance. And that's your problem. That's my problem tonight. You see, whenever you say, Lord, you can count on me, you're about to step on a spiritual banana peel. You're going to sprawl in the faith. Shortly after I became a Christian, someone wrote in the flyleaf of my Bible these words. When I try... I fail. When I trust, He succeeds. My friend, there's a world of theology wrapped up in that couplet. You see, the flesh only knows one thing, and that's failure. And God has no self improvement program for your flesh. If you should live to know Jesus Christ for 40, 50, 60 years, you will be capable of all of the heinous sins described in the Scriptures. But the flesh, while it only knows one thing, that's failure, is in contrast to the Spirit. And the Spirit only knows one thing, and that's success. And to the extent that you and I take each and every step by means of the Spirit, then and only then can we please Him. Has the Spirit of God ever etched those six words that fell from the lips of our Savior on the ledger of your life? Without me, you can do nothing. Watch the danger of a misplaced confidence. Beginning at verse 32 and going through verse 42, we see the second mistake that Peter made. He prayed too little. And will you mark the connection? Whenever you boast too much, you will always pray too little. You see, if I have adequate resources, why pray? If I've got adequate intellect, why pray? Prayer is the recognition that your need is not partial, it's total. You remember the story, Jesus took a number of disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, my soul is deeply distressed and troubled. You stay here and keep watch. He went a little further, fell on his knees, and verse 37 says, when he returned to his disciples, he found them sleeping. And he said unto Simon, Simon, are you asleep? In the Greek text, this is in the emphatic position. And should be translated, Peter, are you asleep? You're the last person in the world that should be asleep. But Peter's out like a light. And then he adds that intriguing expression. Could you not keep watch for one hour? Every now and then someone builds a new church and asks me to suggest a verse of scripture that would be appropriate for the front of their newly constructed auditorium. And you know, I have thought, this would be a good one. Could you not keep watch for one hour? You'll have to take this by faith, but I used to play baseball. This is back before the flood. And I still enjoy a good professional ball game. And some time ago, I took my two boys In an effort to cultivate a neighbor for Jesus Christ, invited him and his two boys to go with us to see a professional ball game. And with all of my interest in baseball, I have never seen a more boring game in all my life. I just about fell asleep between pitches. But my neighbor was sitting on the edge of the chair yelling his head off at what I'll never know. Next Sunday, we took him to church. Man, he was scarcely 10 minutes into the service before he was in the second or third stage of anesthesia. Out like a light. And then he adds that intriguing expression, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body, the flesh, is we? If your experience matches mine, the one area in your Christian life in which you are constantly shot down in flames, is your prayer life. How do you account for that? There's not a man or a woman listening to me who needs an exhortation to pray. Jesus Christ said, men ought always to pray and never to throw in the town. The Apostle Paul says, pray without interruption. James says, you have not because you ask not, you ask and receive not because you ask it amiss that you may consume it upon your own lust. My friend, this is not the product of an accident. This is the product of cultivation. You see, Satan doesn't mind if you witness for Jesus Christ just so you don't pray. Because he knows, if you don't, that it is far more important to talk to God about men than it is to talk to men about God. Satan doesn't mind if you study the Bible. He loves it. Just so you don't pray. Because then you'll develop a severe case of spiritual pride. And there's nothing more lethal. Satan doesn't mind you becoming compulsively, neurotically active down at the local church just so you don't pray, because then nothing will ever happen of significance anyway. Though you'll think that because you are active, you're really doing something worthwhile for the cause of Jesus Christ. I've discovered over the years, ladies and gentlemen, the one thing you cannot do is popularize prayer. You see, I can announce that I'm going to give a prophetic series and they come out from under the rocks. I can announce to a group of Christian people we're going to talk a marriage and a family and we get a substantial crowd. But announce we're going to have a prayer meeting and it looks like Hiroshima. Hiroshima. It looks like Nagasaki. And my friends, you can't promote it. No PR program will ever bring people out to a prayer meeting because prayer is the recognition that your need is not partial, it's total. Well, there's a third mistake he made. It's found in verses 43 through 50. And that's the mistake of acting too soon. And again, mark the connection. You see, whenever you boast too much, you're going to pray too little. If you say, Lord, you can count on me, then you're not going to count on him. And if you don't count on him, then you're invariably going to act too soon. Judas and a band of men armed with swords and clubs came under cover of darkness to seize our savior and verse 46 says the men seized Jesus and arrested him then one of those standing near another of the gospels tells us it was peter drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his ear you know there's a lot of humor in the scriptures And this is a classic case in point. Do you get the picture? Here's Peter out from sheer exhaustion. Perhaps as a result of the brandishing of the soldiers' swords or the scuffling of their feet, he comes into partial consciousness and sees they're seizing the Lord. And he says, man, now's the time to go into action. And he whips out a sword. Now, he's got a couple problems. Number one, he's sleepy. And I can identify with him at that point. Somebody called me up in my home in Dallas some time ago, wanted to know if this was Joe's Tavern. (laughs) It was about 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm not sure I had the right end of the telephone up, much less was I coherent in my response. In the second place, he was angry. I also used to wrestle occasionally. And the coach used to say, if you can ever get your opponent angry, you can whip him. Because an angry man is never fully under control. But in the third place, he's a fisherman, and fishermen make poor swordsmen. You see, Roman soldiers were required by law to practice a minimum of an hour a day, taking their sword out of their sheath, pivoting in this fashion, bringing the sword over their head so they could get full leverage, coming down in this fashion. The helmets were welded right down the middle. So if you could hit the weld with enough force and accuracy, you could split the helmet, obviously dispose of the victor. Now, there's no question in my mind that this is what Peter is attempting to do. But he's slightly off target. And it fascinates me to put all of the gospel accounts together because it's at this point that the Lord says, Peter, put your sword away. You don't understand what it's all about. If my purposes were carnal, I could summon 12 legions of angels. They'd be dispatched from heaven in a moment and liquidate the enemy. My purposes are not carnal, Peter. Put your sword away. Do you see his problem? It's the same one you and I face every single day of the week, sometimes a half a dozen times in the morning. He was active when he should have been passive. And he was passive when he should have been active. You see, when he should have been active in prayer, he was passive in sleep. And when he should have been passive in resignation to the will of God, he's active with the sword. Do you ever find yourself in that situation? You know, someone calls you on the phone and says, Merd. I know I shouldn't tell you this, but. And that doesn't sound right, so we usually add, in order that you might pray more intelligently. And then we unload the gossip. But but you wouldn't tell anybody. Oh my, I wouldn't think about it. But you can scarcely wait to get off the telephone to get back on. To pass it on to somebody else. But less than a half an hour goes by, and you've got the choicest opportunity to share your faith. And it's as if you got lockjaw. You're silent in 27 languages. Active when you should be passive. Passive when you should be active. I wonder what price we have paid in the body of Christ for people who spend so much time acting in the flesh. Oh, I think of a dear friend of mine whom I regard so highly, who ministered the word for 40-some years with distinction and power. But he grew bitter right at the end of his ministry. And in the last message to his people, he shot his mouth off in the flesh. And I've prayed with him on a number of occasions. I've never seen hotter tears course down the cheeks of a human being. As he said, Howie, I'd give everything if I could take that message back. See, that happens in a marriage. You wouldn't believe the things that people say to each other in my presence. My friend, I wouldn't say them to a dog. And the interesting thing is, they say them to each other, and the other person never even flinches. Because they've been hearing that. For a long time. Very easy to get motivated in the flesh and decide, man, we've got to do something. Let's go into action. And the result of our action is devastation. Because we are not under the control of the Spirit, our actions are not bathed in prayer. Now, look at the last mistake he made. Don't miss this or you miss everything. It's down in the last paragraph in verses 66 through 72. Peter made the mistake of thinking too little and too late. Verse 66, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. Hey, you also are with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, woman. And when the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing by, more literally, she kept saying, this is one of them, this is one of them, this is one of them. Nothing like a persistent woman. And a little while, those standing near said to him, surely you're one of them because you're a Galilean. I met a student at Dallas Seminary a few years ago, right at the beginning of the semester, first time I ever saw him in my life. We talked for a moment or two. I said, what part of Canada are you from? He said, how do you know I'm from Canada? I said, because I've been there. (laughs) See, you don't have to be around a person from Texas who has a true Texas accent very long. Before you know, howdy, y'all. They've got the mark. And if you had a Galilean accent, it was thicker than a Bronx accent from New York. You could detect it just like that. Now notice, verse 71, he began to call down curses on himself and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Who said that? Man who said, you can count on me. The man who said, my devotion is so great it's willing to go to the point of death. And if you're sitting there saying, well, you know, Hendrix, that would never happen to me. Then, my friend, you're already on the same road that Peter took. Now, look at the next statement. Verse 72. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered, he called to mind the word Jesus had spoken to him before the roaster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And when he thought thereon, he wept. You see, Peter thought, but unfortunately it was too little. It was too late. Julian the apostate in the 3rd century, was determined to blot out every trace of Christianity. To his disgust, he discovered the law of spiritual thermodynamics. Namely, the greater the heat, the greater the expansion. The more he persecuted the church, the more the thing flourished. And finally, he got his little scraggly band of disciples in an upper room, and he shouted to them, Bah! Christianity provokes too much thinking! Why even the slaves are thinking, which to a Roman mind is incredible, because the Romans said slaves do not think. But, ladies and gentlemen, slaves do think under the impact of the Word of God. Do you? I guess the thing that disturbs me most about my own life and about the life of my brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ is how often we are content to plow on through life doing the same things we have been doing without ever stopping and saying, Hey, what's the significance of this? How does this line up? with what the scriptures teach. One of the wealthiest men in our community has the dubious distinction of having blown four children out of the saddle. One in prostitution, two in drugs. The fourth one we're looking for in every state of the Union, 30-some different countries have been for the last 10 years. He sat across from my desk one day and said to me, Hendricks, I put my money on a dead horse. You know, if I were to say to that man, sir, I will guarantee to get your four children back if you'll do one thing. You know what he'd say? What is it? I'd say, man, if you will cut off your right arm, I'll guarantee to get your four kids back. You know what he'd say? Give me the knife. You see, he's made that decision now. But it's very late. And I believe one of the greatest needs in the body of Christ is for those of us who claim the word of God to be the God-inspired truth revealed from heaven. To take time to think. How does this relate to what I am doing in light of eternity in its values? The most exciting thing about this story is that Peter's failure was not fatal. You see, the first time the Lord met him, he said, Thou art Simon, thou shalt be called Cephas, which by interpretation means rock. It took the Lord considerable time to get him Simonized get the Simon out of him and the rock into him. But when he did, it was men of Peter's ilk of whom the pagan world testified, these are they who have turned the world upside down. If Peter could speak at Winona Lake at the Moody Conference, I think he would say, ladies and gentlemen, don't boast so much. Your need is not partial, it's total." Don't pray so little. Don't act so soon. And I think he would pause, and with a note of emphasis he would say, And for God's sake, think! Think before it's eternally too late. Father in heaven, we pray that the truth you have revealed and preserved will penetrate deep into mind and into life and bring glory and honor to your name. We ask it through Jesus Christ, our risen
0: Lord. Amen. You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.